Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Good morning, Vietnam! I drink your milkshake. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Sorry, you just tough talk a dead body? Get busy living or get busy dying. Keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. That's goddamn right. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Hey, friends. Welcome back to the show. This is our second week with, we're going to call it, uh, The Art of the Bad Film. So I'm joined uh, once again by uh, the one and only Ben Snowden. Welcome back to the show, Ben. Hi. Uh, we started it off last week with uh, each of us bringing what we call the bad, bad movie, where I kind of defined as like a movie that's got no value, that actually has negative value, where like you walk away worse off than you were before you started. And uh, something happened last night with me and Anna when we were driving home. My wife, uh, we've been together for like five years, and she's had to put up with some really shitty movies from me over the years. And uh, she's embraced it with grace. But last night, we're driving home from the grocery store, and she says, she says, babe, I want to watch The Room tonight. Bombshell. <laughs> the Disaster Artist came out. That's kind of why I decided to do these bad, bad movies, because it's a big part of, well, as we discovered last week, it's a big part of all of our childhood pastimes. I don't know what it is about Midwest white boys, but we love our shitty movies. It's all that corn and cheap beer. Yeah, all those MGDs and <laughs> natural ice. MGD, PBR. Best. Yeah, we, we figure that our movies have to meet the quality of our beer. Yeah, exactly. So, naturally, I was thrilled. And the first thing that I could think to say, I was like, babe, I'm almost disappointed that I didn't get to look forward to this all day. So, uh, had she, had Anna seen the room before this be her first viewing? Yeah, so she, when we did it for the podcast last year, she walked in as I was in the middle of it, but she sat down and she watched like 15 minutes of it last year, just kind of not sure what she was watching. But Disaster Artist is getting some Oscar nods, and hmm. it, it sounds like it's it's really picking up steam. So yeah, we watched it last night, and it's the first time that I had seen it in like since last year. Have you watched it since we did the podcast? Oh, you know what? Since the podcast, I don't think I've seen it maybe but once. I think I just watched it because I think it was maybe at or around the time I read the book, The Disaster Artist, just so I could have, you know, kind of a, a touching point mm -hmm. between the book and the room. So now it's just kind of crazy. Now you have the room. There's the book about the room called The Disaster Artist. And now there's The Disaster Artist, the movie that's based on the book that's about the room. It's <laughs> the making of the movie. A little, a little convoluted, but I, I'm all for it as long as it's, it's good. Cause I'm, this is one of those movies I'm really excited to see. Oh yeah, for sure. So watching the room again, I didn't like find any gems that I missed the first time, but the obsession of the man for me is back. I, I've been watching interviews with him all day. He did an hour long radio show one of those like serious xm shows on youtube and the host of the show was kind of mean you know different people have different intentions when they're interviewing tommy 
Some of them are being good sports about it because it still seems pretty evident to me that his intention when making the movie was very much different than what the movie is now. Yeah, that was everything was definitely unintentional. The, the, the parts that are entertaining, he thought people would be, you know, taking this film very seriously, and that's definitely not the case. Yeah, so I'm really excited to see The Disaster Artist because I'm just really fascinated by, like, what was going through his mind when he was in that audience for the first time, you know, and, like, their reaction because it's gotten an incredible reaction, which every director wants, but in what direction is that reaction going, you know? Yeah, especially because, too, uh, if my memory serves right, when the Disaster Artist book came out, Tommy Wiseau was very upset by the way he was portrayed, which it's funny now because someone was throwing out there that when the book came out, Tommy said that it was 40% accurate, but now with the movie, he's saying the movie is 99.9% accurate. Yeah. So maybe it's somewhere in the middle between that 40 and 99.9. Yeah, I know. I Probably because <laughs> James Franco is more attractive than Greg Sestero. Yeah. James Franco was just on Jimmy Kimmel. I don't know if you saw that interview, but he brought Tommy with him. I, I saw a blurb and I read the short story, but I haven't watched any of the uh, the footage on YouTube. It was pretty good. He's uh, talking to Tommy on air and he's like, hey, Tommy, I'm going to tell that story about what happened to that 0.1%. And Tommy looked like he was embarrassed or something. <laughs> and James was like, he basically said what you just said. He's like, you know, he, you thought the book was 40% accurate. You said my movie was 99.9% .9 accurate. And then what did you say when I asked about that 0.1%? And Tommy's like, <laughs> Tommy goes, Oh, I said, Greg, you needed to work on the lighting. The, the movie was a little bit too dark. <laughs> James Franco goes, Tommy, it's because you were wearing your sunglasses. <laughs> and he, <laughs> so I love that he wears his sunglasses even at the movies. Yeah. I wonder how that affects his his color palette and how he interprets it too, because Tommy's definitely a very, very nitpicky director, as you could tell by the room. I mean, no detail went untouched, no <laughs> stone went unturned. No sex scene went unused twice. No green screen went ungreen screened. <laughs> yeah, I guess I did hear I did find out in the interview that when they filmed the room, Tommy shot in 35 millimeter format and he also shot in HD format which is pretty unheard of and when they made the Blu-ray they didn't transfer the DVD to the Blu-ray they transferred the 35 millimeter footage to the Blu-ray so this this interviewer was like so Tommy my question is why did you shoot HD footage because you didn't use any of it he's like <laughs> he was like well you know I'm a I got to work on my uh, Tommy Wiseau impression. It kind of sounds like Woody Allen. He was like, well, you know, I'm a creative person. I, I wanna, I'm going to write a book, and I, I wanted to look at the comparison. Next question. <laughs> Whenever he got in a bind, he was like, next question. He's the man. He can dictate any interview, you know? I mean, he's, I mean, my theory that I'm still working on is that he's a vampire from another time or dimension. Oh, my God. He has to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I still can't. I still just can't put the pieces together of this fucking movie. We were watching it last night, and I realized that the 
entrances and exits of the characters. And I know it's been a little while for you, but I'm sure it's like the the memory is fresh in your head, in your mind's yeah, eye. Yeah, that's that's one of those ones that whether you watch it, you know, completely sober or a few drinks, it just etches itself, <laughs> almost like you know, chiseling stone into your memory. Yeah, I'm Stu. I'm sure Stu would uh, agree with that. Oh. He, he wants to erase those memories. He I wants know. to get the bulldozer out to erase the memories etched in stone. Or for him, it'd probably be something more, more scarring. Yeah. You know? He would need to go to like Total Recall or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Total Re- they, That's what they should do. Uh, um, somebody watches the room. So here's the plot. Somebody watches the room. Someone likes to, like, man, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. And I'm just shell shocked. I'm never going to get over it. So <laughs> it's a Total Recall plot, but maybe instead of, Having them forget the room, they throw them into the room universe, oh and my God. the person has to live the movie or try to escape the movie. Where everybody acts in real life the way they act in the movie. Yeah, yeah, it's like, why is everyone dressed in a tuxedo, throwing footballs <laughs> around? They're just jogging around, goofing off. What's and who's this? Who's this character? And why is Lisa the one who's sought after? Because it's not like she's even the most attractive woman in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has a terrible personality. Why is everyone having sex with my friends? Yeah. But I noticed that most of the movie takes place in the living room, and the entrances and exits remind me of a sitcom. It is very much like that. And I, that's what makes it kind of weird. Yeah, and I didn't realize it, but he said in the interview that originally the idea was based on a play. Like, most of his background is in theater, so they're working on a room Broadway play right now. But it, <laughs> I know. But it made a lot of sense. I was like, yeah, the movie is a total play. Like, all of those locations the the reason i think that they look so cheesy is because they all look so two-dimensional they look like sets yeah there are some parts where you almost expect there to be laugh tracks yeah i know <laughs> like when that guy gets the blowjob and his face is like a cartoon yeah but anyway so i had fun last week doing the bad bad movies but there's just something that i really respect about tommy wasau i mean there's a lot of them One being that he had a vision to make a movie and he did it. Two, that he is so good to his fans. Whenever he does an interview, he like starts and stops and halfway through he'll say, I just want to say thank you to my fans and everybody that, that watches this movie. Uh, thank you for supporting it, which is awesome. And as cringy as it is, it's got this undefinable heart and soul that I love in good, bad movies. Yeah, there's. It, it's almost like you could use the word charismatic to oh, totally. something that's inanimate because this is one of those deals where just the movie has its own spark and its own life like a lot of good, bad movies do. You know, you look at a, a similar treatment, you know, you have The Disaster Artist. That was a book written about The Room. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, or I think it's Worst Best Movie, which is about... Uh, Troll 2. Oh, yeah. That's one of those ones, too, where you get more into the mythology behind this movie that just shouldn't have happened at all. Mm-hmm. And even if you didn't know the history behind it, with Troll 2 and all the unforgettable lines and scenes and there being no trolls and they're vegetarian goblins who turn people into plants. But you're like, wait, they're vegetarians, but if people <laughs> are the vegetables, wait a second. I don't know. Don't so, question it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is interesting to see how something does become such a, a train wreck. I'd love to see one on, on Battlefield Earth, but then that one just might be more depressing than anything. Just think about how much money they spent with a lot of, of bad movies. I know Troll 2 was 
more shoestring. I know the room, that was one of those ones where the budget spiraled out of control, but comparatively, I mean, Battlefield Earth, you could use the, the budget of that movie to buy a small country or an island or something. Yeah, no kidding. I ain't going to no midnight premiere of Battlefield Earth. <laughs> Hawk Jones. Have you ever heard of Hawk Jones? Hawk Jones. I have not heard of that one. This came from Zach Warrens. It's this movie from the 90s that's a feature-length film, and it's a heisty action movie, but it's all child actors. I'm looking at some images on Google, and this looks like it's going to be a treat. <laughs> yeah, and I can't imagine a finer definition of movies with heart than like when they fought when they shoot guns, the muzzle flash is a little like cartoon star that says "bam." <laughs> so it's it sounds like maybe it's a combination of the uh, the Batman TV series with some gritty '80s child crime fighting. Mm-hmm. I'm all for that. Yeah, and I think too, it's um their little twist is that it's actually. For children, there's no blood, there's no swearing. You know, this, this, the movie takes place in the town of Minitropolis. <laughs> wow. Which is just too cute for words. Yeah. So the movie that I just sprawled on Ben because I was sure that he had seen it is not a brand new movie. This came out in 2015. It's called Krampus. And not to be confused with any of the Krampus movies that came after it, because I was just looking out of curiosity, and now that this movie had some relative success and it actually made money, you'll find that there's more than one Krampus movie, which makes sense because it's it's based on myth. It's like Austrian, Bavarian folklore, so there's no real intellectual property. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, copycat movies that came after this. Which, that's that's kind of what horror does, you know, because with, with Krampus, it's okay. You have this kid, and his family life isn't so great, it seems. Uh, Max, and his, I think it's his mother's... Yeah, I think it's his dad's mom. Are you talking about the grandma? A, oh, no, I was talking about the, uh, the wacky Christmas vacation style oh, yeah. family. That'd be what, his maternal yes, aunt. Yes, And... Uh, basically, it's like, oh, I hate Christmas now, and I'm going to rip apart this note to Santa Claus. And apparently, this is what triggers Krampus, who is the shadow of St. Nick, to come and, uh, you know, kind of put a damper on Christmas, to put it Yeah, lightly. more of a damper than David Keckner walking in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we'll just have to dive right in. <laughs> yeah, because that's really the only thing you can do with this one. Yeah. I'll say I, I liked it. It was obviously like a love letter to Joe Dante's comedy horror movies of the 80s. Yeah. Which you don't see too much of these days because it's, you know, I guess my problem with movies like this is when there's dialogue that's like way overacted or there's like plot devices that are ridiculous. You know, the filmmaker can laugh them off. It's like, yeah, it's campy. You know, you can have an escape for anything. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I noticed too that. Even though you could tell when things were obviously supposed to be funny a fair amount of times, sometimes you're you're wondering if this movie really is trying to take itself seriously. I know um, when I was thinking about the, the DNA of the movie, so to speak, especially that opening segment where it's a bunch of shoppers and they're trampling each other. Oh, that was going, great. I mean, that was probably, to me, the best shots of the film and also... Uh, the best embodiment of what is wrong with the holiday season, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's like they took all of the, like the entirety of Jingle All the Way 
and cut down on like the jetpack superhero parts. Like, yeah, this if you wanted to uh, really say what that movie's saying in one opening scene, here it is. Like, security guards tasing people, people punching each other in the face for toys and gifts. Uh, there's a, a manger scene where um, our, our main kid, Max, is getting in a fight with another kid. And uh, shoppers exhausted in the lines. The employees exhausted at, you know, their, their cashier station. I thought that was great. It's It's like, you know basically saying something serious about the holidays, which after that, you're kind of like, yeah, they get into this family dynamic and Max saying, oh, I wish Christmas was better, but they don't really do a whole lot of, of real character building, but it's a horror film. So yeah, I I did love that opening scene. That was such a great juxtaposition that reminded me of a couple of scenes in Clockwork Orange when Alex is beating and raping while singing, singing in the rain. You know, it's like so against what you would expect to be appropriate. It makes you stop and think like, why was, why did this director choose this song? You know, but the slow motion and Krampus for that opening scene was fantastic. Yeah, that was one of those deals where it worked very well. And I think that's one thing that this movie does get right with that juxtaposition because they use that a little bit later where I think, um, they might be, the family might be watching, um, I can't remember which classic Christmas movie it is on an iPad, but then the iPad loses its charge, the music turns off, the fireplace fire goes out, and then that's when I think the, the hook drops with the gingerbread man on it. Yeah. So basically a cool mixture of classic, you know, Bing Crosby style music while something bad's about to happen. Yeah, I think that we're probably the prime demographic. For this movie, yeah. I read it did it did really well. It, it had a budget of 15 million, and it grossed uh, 42 million in the United States, 18 overseas. It had a worldwide gross of 61 million, so it definitely made some money. But I feel like overall the movie it seemed like it wasn't as dark as it wanted to be, and it also wasn't yeah. and it also wasn't as funny as it wanted to be. Yeah, because it it felt like and and I read a little bit after watching the movie that. One of the reasons they even agreed to make this was the PG-13 rating. I thought there were probably a couple times where it felt like they wanted to go into our territory, but they wouldn't be able to. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I think of if you're really going for it, so to speak, with the holiday theme and you want to get really dark and brutal, um, you're going back to more controversial uh, Christmas horror films like the original Black Christmas or Silent Night, Deadly Night, where they did do legitimately disturbing things with holiday themes. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say is like a lot of the movie, I felt like instead of watching Krampus, what I really wanted to watch was Silent Night, Deadly Night, or I really wanted to watch Gremlins. Yeah, Gremlins is a good one. I feel like they were kind of trying to catch that Gremlins spirit with Krampus's evil toys. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like that scene where David Koechner is blasting those gingerbread men with a shotgun. Yeah, or maybe a little bit if you want to go in, in a kind of a different direction, but not horribly off. The toys also reminded me a little bit of <laughs> Puppet Master. Yeah, 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 totally. Or um, did you ever see the movie Doll Man? Yeah, because they had uh, a Doll Man versus there was another franchise. Was it Satanic? Oh, toys? Demonic Toys. Demonic Toys, yes, and I, I think I saw that movie at least four times. My God, uh, back in back in my family video days, because the cover of the VHS, I just pulled it up. It's like an evil clown, Jack in the Box, and then Doll Man is shooting him, 
I think shooting <laughs> through him. And then there's like a baby doll and this little tank that is also shooting the evil clown. Oh my god! Uh, Jack in the Box. It's brilliant. I think a, yeah. I think that's like a real strong sign of the times too. I think that's another reason these movies are hard to be successful at now is because I don't know if audience expectations are higher or if the standard for movies is higher. You know what I mean? Well, plus two, when you put $15 million budget on a movie and you're trying to emulate something that was much lower budget, then that's where it gets complicated because people ask the questions you do. Like you were saying, Jimmy, you know, was that really meant to be funny or are you just using that as an excuse to laugh off something you really wanted to be serious? Yeah. Especially when uh, I would say another another positive of this film is the the portrayal of the the grandmother who uh, I believe is is Austrian. So she does a really good job of being fearful and kind of secretive of what's happening when you know that something's kind of going on. I mean, you know what's going to happen because you've probably seen the trailer and you've seen a horror film, but. One thing definitely worth talking about is that, uh, I don't know if they use stop motion or CGI, but when the grandmother's explaining her memory, her first oh, memory yeah. of Krampus when she was a child, and she talks about her village losing their faith in their Christmas spirit, and they're in the bread line, and people are stealing each, each other's bread, and her parents rip apart her Santa Claus doll. That was done really well, too. I was almost thinking, this movie might have worked better in full animation, yeah. Like a dark animated film a lot of times has more impact than live action. Yeah, I know. The scenes like that that I thought it worked really well kind of like raised my standards. And then the woman that plays David Koechner's wife, Allison Tolman, she was in the FX show Fargo. Oh, yeah. And she was the star of that show. I don't know if you ever saw that show Fargo, but it was unbelievable. I need to check that out because she looked really familiar. And I know I've watched the trailer for Fargo. I just haven't gotten into it because it's stacked behind everything else on my watch list. Oh, I know. <laughs> it never ends. I know it really doesn't. But I felt like David Koechner and I, I kind of have mixed feelings about him, but his similarities to uncle Eddie were just almost too much for me to bear. Yeah. The, the big vehicle, the, rambunctious attitude the yes i'm i'm broke and i still have a hummer attitude even though you know uh, eddie didn't yeah it was just like yeah i see what they're they're doing here i feel like every movie that's christmas related has a character like aunt dorothy yeah 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 where it's just like she's the curmudgeon and she just tells it like it's like kind of like the the little twist they had on it where sarah the the wife actually tells her off when, you know, she's in the kitchen making creme brulee. It's like, hey, why don't we go to your trailer and have Christmas at your trailer? And you can spend hours preparing your own meal. Yeah, that was surprising. I was kind of uh, happy when she did that. I like scenes like that where, you know, usually in horror movies, the satisfying parts, depending on what your tastes are, you know, when maybe the villain gets his or her or its comeuppance, or when a really terrible character just like gets opt in the most gruesome way possible. That was kind of an equivalent to that. Yeah, you know, it was. Dorothy didn't get opt, but I think everyone knows someone like Aunt Dorothy or has an Aunt Dorothy, and you've always wanted to say that to her, but you just never said it because it's like, oh, she is who she is. Oh, just totally. Let it slide. Totally. And in a movie too, you know, the worse a character like that acts, the more vile their comeuppance is going to be. But hers wasn't bad. She just kind of got 
dragged away by dirty elves. Yeah, elves, elves with chains. Which one thing I thought of? So you see Krampus at first, and he has his horns, and he has the robe over his horns, and I really like the character design too. He, he's kind of like a goat standing up, but with the way he moves, I was like, wow, his horns kind of remind me of a bantha. Yes, and then. The elves are moving around in the scene behind kind of this army of snowmen. You get the impression when someone is, is captured that they're built into a snowman. It's like, wait a second, they kind of look like Jawas. And then when that creepy clown appears in the attic and he opens his mouth, it looks like a sarlacc mouth. I'm like, wait a second, am I just drawing conclusions here that aren't there? Or are they making these little references to Star Wars? Or am I just completely stupid and nuts? No, I I thought the same thing. But I'm, I mean, I'm glad they did it because I, I agree. It was definitely more of a less is more with the Krampus. They didn't really show him up close until the very end. And even when they, and even when they did show him up close, I thought they did a really good job. In fact, I thought they did too good of a job for the brand of movie that they're trying to advertise. Yeah, because I thought they were just going to go maybe the CGI route up close, but it seems like someone put a lot of time and effort into his design. And my favorite thing too was, you could tell that there was something behind his kind of a creepy old man screaming mask, but you didn't know what it was. I can't remember the name of it, but there was a, there was an HP Lovecraft story that was kind of like that, where you could tell that there were people behind masks and they were probably hundreds of years old and it was really creepy. Kind of that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the ending was nice. I mean, both kind of endings, the sweet heartwarming and then everybody's in the snow globe. Yeah, and it's it's hard to say what's truly going on there, and I'm not sure if, if that's what was intended or not, because at first I thought, you know, my fear was leading up to the ending where, you know, Max is kind of the sole survivor, all of his family has been taken away pretty much into this uh, blizzard, he's chasing after Krampus and, you know, Krampus's goons, and you think, oh, it's going to all be a dream, but they kind of eliminate that, and... I'm wondering with with the way the last scene played out, if either A, the family is in the snow globe for eternity, so it's kind of like they're reliving Christmas every day and they hate it, or if it's B, they're actually getting a chance to redo Christmas because Max confronted Krampus and there's like some benevolence in Krampus, and Krampus is just watching over them in case they slip. Yeah, I kind of... It's an interesting quandary. I don't know how you viewed like the whole Santa Claus when you were younger. Uh, but I never really believed like wholeheartedly. It just, none of it really ever made sense to me. Yeah. Maybe when I was really, really small. Do you remember when you stopped believing? Was it like a rites of passage? You know, I don't, I don't necessarily remember a specific age or a specific moment where it was like, Oh, you know what? Now that I think about it, how can one man have flying reindeer and deliver presents to every single child in the world and how can he eat all those cookies and milk without you know seeing the doctor yeah because he would be having some major medical issues he would he would have some diabetes for sure yeah yeah but i i guess if i had to like plan out the scenario when i was little like okay well let's let's pretend for a second this fat ass exists he would have to have some sort of like surveillance or radar or or something and with Krampus, I kind of gathered that that is Krampus's means of, like, keeping track of all the boys and girls, I guess, that, like, every household in the world has their own snow globe. Yeah, that could be it. 
Yeah, that's that's a good question because it seems like he has a lot of them. <laughs> he sure had a lot of snow globes. <laughs> and another thing too that I was I was thinking about with you know Krampus's relation to Santa Claus, and then what this movie is or isn't trying to say. When it was advertised, they made it kind of seem like it was the anti-Christmas movie. But when you think about what the movie's kind of saying, they end up having the same themes as a lot of other Christmas movies. Like, okay, family's important. You know, the whole reason for the season thing, even though they don't really get into the religious aspect of it. Yeah. It, the whole movie's about, you know, the Max, he stops believing, which brings Krampus on. And... Yeah, they, they get into how the, the family's dysfunctional, but they're also saying, hey, for Christmas to succeed, you know, your family needs to be all on the same page and at least a little bit loving, which I guess I guess Tom's also trying to say that, too, when he's talking to Max after that fight scene in the dining room. Yeah, yeah, it definitely had the uh, PG-13 vibes. Yeah. And uh, you just had mentioned that it's PG-13. I had watched it with the mindset that it was R. Actually, I had thought it was R this whole time. And one of my complaints was that, like, the movie, it seemed really pretty weak for an R horror movie. Yeah. Like, I kept reading how violent it was, and I was like, I don't think there's a drop of blood in the whole movie. I mean, there's, uh, I think there's maybe an icicle through the eye of that teddy bear, and it's green goo, and then oh, I think yeah. the teddy bear gets its brains blown out, but then it's evil teddy bear. And the actual people, I don't think, ever meet violent ends like you don't really see anything except maybe uh like can i oh howard um you see his leg that's bloody oh yeah that's true um which i i think my favorite part of the movie um i loved when the daughter is out and it the darkness falls on her yeah i love that that was that was done really well but again it's like for the kind of movie that you're trying to portray you guys put a lot of production value like way too much production value into this. Uh, you need to gr- well, you need true. to grain it up a little bit, you know. Yeah, it did come across as as pretty squeaky clean. And then you think about the the dread they tried to build because then Tom and Howard go out in Lucinda the Hummer and they try to track down Beth the daughter and they find the house of uh, I believe it's Beth's boyfriend and the windows are smashed in. They find a snow pile with windows yeah. smashed in. There's this gingerbread man with a knife through it on the refrigerator. Like, man, there's going to be some wicked payoff to this. And you're like, well, in terms of the payoff, it was, it was all right. I mean, it was still fun. You're kind of like, oh, the, the dark tone that they were hinting at just kind of got erased. Yeah. Once it starts getting wacky. Yeah, it totally did. I think that, kind of like struck me as some serious pacing issues. Like that scene yeah. that scene was awesome and I thought and that was fairly early on. But again, like you said, if it would have been like R rated and they would have had a lot more room to kind of like spread their horror wings. Yeah. But it, it did. Like yeah. it, it totally nobody nobody really was in too much danger and it ended very similar to a lot of other holiday movies. But I liked it. I don't know how my attitude is coming across here, but I liked the movie just fine. It was something different. It was like the night after we watched The Polar Express. Oh. <laughs> so, I mean, they're pretty much the same movie. Yeah, they, they, they both have ghosts. <laughs> ghosts and bells. I mean, same difference, same deal. But yeah, I, I feel like, too, sometimes I feel like when I'm speaking on a podcast, too, that it may come across as uh, more critical, but then 
I feel like when I'm, I'm watching a movie for a podcast to explain things, I'm probably looking at it with more of a critical eye than, say, um, <laughs> just a recent movie I watched, Bedeviled, which is about a phone app that kills people, <laughs> basically s- scares them to death. So uh, I, I wrote a quick Facebook post about it. It's like, oh, it's a bargain bin Freddy who yeah. tries to scare kids to death through a phone app instead of through their dreams. It's like, eh, I'm laughing at it. I don't think I'm supposed to be, but I'm laughing <laughs> at it, so it's entertaining me. So that's usually the way I, I watch movies. It's like, well, even if something wasn't intended, like with The Room, and I really enjoy it, I'm cool with it. And that's kind of what Krampus is is to me, like still entertaining, um, but they probably could have made a much better film. Yeah, it was it was definitely uh, stands out among holiday films i guess yeah which that's you're, you're not really uh fighting hard to get to the top of the scrap heap there yeah i know which my my favorite might still be if you're if you're talking like movies along these lines just kind of wacky out there holiday films uh santa's sleigh s-l-a-y oh god with that Goldberg. Stars, yeah yeah so if you're looking for another evil santa claus style movie santa's sleigh is another <laughs> enjoyable one where they just they don't even go for subtlety at all and i believe that one is r-rated oh, for sure strip clubs and over-the-top violence but yeah the opening yeah. scene i remember was awesome with chris Catan and james Kahn. yeah yeah maybe that's a give. maybe that's what i wanted to watch instead of krampus see that's the thing too especially with streaming services or being able to rent movies digitally basically movies being out there and at your fingertips in two seconds is that you know, a movie you're watching right now may remind you of a movie you like a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. Well, I was looking at the Santa Slay on uh, IMDb, and now I really want to watch Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah, I remember watching that when I was younger, and I'd, you know, still watched a lot of horror films then. And even that one, I was like, man, they really did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> man in a, a Santa Claus outfit doing really bad things. Yeah, really bad things. But I, I do like the concept, Santa Claus, just a man who goes into your house when everybody is asleep and has full access to your um, to your home. And it's it's kind of creepy, kind of like the kind of like the tooth fairy, which they've also made a couple of horror films about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was thinking, too, one part of the film that I was excited about that never reached fruition. Remember how they were talking about getting the whole family to the snowplow and then Tom would clear the path and the family would be in the car behind us like, oh, they're going to do something Dawn of the Dead-like with this. They're going to be groups of people and then Krampus is going to have this huge army of evil toys and elves and it's going to be an awesome final battle. Yeah, you're totally right. I thought that's what they were leading to. Yeah, I thought that too. And maybe that was like a little coup that maybe that was intentionally done, like knowing that people that are watching this movie will have seen Dawn of the Dead like 20,000 times. Yeah. I was going to mention one more quick holiday-related suggestion if you're into dumb (laughs) holiday-related horror films. If you want to go maybe maybe one pig below Santa's sleigh, that would be Jack Frost. Oh, yes. But not the friendly Jack Frost. I mean, like, the killer snowman. Return of the Mutant Snowman, I believe, is the name of the second one. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a doozy. Oh, man. There's just so many. Do you, do you have a favorite holiday movie besides Batman Returns? Uh, it's hard to top Batman Returns. <laughs> but I would say if, if you're looking at maybe top two, like, if you're looking for something that's more mainstream for me, I, I loved 
doing Jingle All the Way for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Like that movie is is still such a blast. Uh, and then I would say probably Santa Slay. <laughs> if I can't pick Batman Returns, yeah, Santa uh, Scrooge and Scrooge. I really like Scrooge. Scrooge is good for sure. How's about you? Um, I think Scrooge is still my favorite. Danny Elfman really knows how to make me feel like Christmas time. But I noticed the last comic book movie. I I don't know if it was Guardians of the Galaxy two, but these blockbuster movies are really becoming like more of a chore to watch. Yeah, I don't know if you've gotten all the way through Punisher yet. Actually, I haven't started because I'm I'm going through my backlog now, <laughs> and I am on episode seven of Glow. Oh, nice! I haven't started Glow yet. Yeah, it's really good. It's definitely hilarious. It's not what I expected, but that's a good thing. That's cool. Um, yeah, the Netflix shows just have, you know, they're just, they're written like eight-hour movies, so they just have a lot more time to tell a story. Which is why a lot of times I prefer to watch uh, a series that's broken up a little bit more because they have that time to, you know, fill out the story itself, to build the characters and the dynamic between characters so they definitely have an advantage, and I, I think that's why what we're experiencing now is what many people, what I consider like a golden age, if you want to consider, you know, streaming media, like on Netflix TV, why people consider it a golden age of TV, because how much great stuff's being pumped out. And actors that 20 years ago t- would turn down roles because they they were in movies, they didn't do TV. And now with like Anthony Hopkins in Westworld, that's crazy. Yep. This summer was the worst summer in cinema for like the last 30 years, the lowest it's been. But it was also due to a lot of garbage that came out this year. There was like the Baywatch movie. I can't even remember all the all the junk that came out. Yeah, that's that's another thing, too. I, I think, you know, we had talked a couple of times on past podcasts about how with some blockbusters, Hollywood was getting smarter, but then with the couple of smart blockbusters they were releasing, you'd have complete turds, mm-hmm. you know? So looking at looking at Krampus 2 and looking at the budget, even though it's not necessarily rivaling anything like a, a Marvel movie, you look at $15 million and you're like, well, are they trying to make this into a blockbuster? Yeah. Which I, I feel like, you know, commercial aspirations like the PG-13 sometimes take away from what the film could have done. Yeah. I use McGruber as another example of like a B movie that they put way too much money and, and effort into. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. I haven't seen it. Okay. Well, you can imagine what it is. It, it is a parody of MacGyver, but it's also a parody of like every police convention you've ever seen in movies done to a very elaborate degree. It was really funny, but they had... A-list celebrities in the movie, including Val Kilmer and Ryan Philippi, which I guess maybe they're not so much A-list anymore, but the budget... They were at one point. Yeah, the the movie lost money because the budget was $10 million, which is pretty low. The global box office was $9.3 million, Oof. which is pretty bad. Yeah, that is bad. So it remi- I use that as an example because it seems like that's what Krampus was, like it didn't it knew what it wanted to be, but it just never quite got there for me. Like it never got, it was never funny enough. It was never scary enough. It was never dark enough. But I think that's the fault of the PG-13 rating. Yeah. And another thing too is with movies, they, well, I should say with horror movies, they kind of live and die by their gimmicks, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Totally. 
horror is one of those genres where a lot of times you don't care what actors are in the movie. It's more, okay, what's the scenario here? You know, what's the killer or killers like? What's supposed to happen? Even the the setting too, you know, like there was this trend where uh, Sirius kind of went to die in space, so to speak, like with Jason and Hellraiser. Like, oh, it's Hellraiser in space. Of course I'm going to watch it. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be terrible? Probably. So I think Krampus definitely, with the advertising, played up that this was definitely not your typical Christmas movie. And I think they kind of advertised the the carnage a little too heavily because I thought that's what this movie was going to be. It's just like, okay, within the first five minutes, all hell breaks loose. All right. Well, we're going to let Ben choose uh, the next movie. Of course, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on soundcloud.com slash movie show theater, pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. So Ben, thanks for coming on long distance. No problem. And until next time, I'm Jimmy. I'm Ben. And you've been listening to Movie Show Theater. Thank you.